everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Teddy Ray. I'm vice president of events for the Yale Federalist Society. This is a special event and special opportunity for us today. Uh, we are joined by two guests whom I'll briefly introduce. Uh, uh, Professor Akhil Amar is here with us. Akhil Amar is a graduate of Yale College. He then graduated from Yale Law School, and then at age 26, he joined the Yale faculty and has been here ever since. Uh, his partner, Andy Lipka, is here today, also graduated from Yale College in 1978. Uh, he actually, he completed all of the necessary classes in three years, and so he took his last year at the school to take 10 humanities classes, I believe it was. Indeed. Uh, uh, just broadening his horizons before he then uh, went into a career as uh, an ophthalmologist. He was an ophthalmologist in Princeton, New Jersey, where he was actually chief of ophthalmology at University Medical Center for 25 years until he retired in 2019. At his retirement, he's, uh, he's done two major new works. Uh, the first one is he became president of Everscholar. Uh, the other, which particularly is important to us today, at least uh, in the way that I imagine it, is that he set about trying to solve a new problem in the world, which is that sometimes it's hard to know what Akhil Amar really thinks. <laughs> there, there are only a, a few small ways that you might be able to divine that. Uh, for instance, you could watch old episodes of The West Wing, where Akhil Amar was an informal consultant, but it, it might be hard to identify exactly which pieces of that are Akhil Amar's thinking. So instead, you could maybe turn to law reviews and book chapter articles. Uh, he has over a hundred of those, but we all know that sometimes uh, law professors hide the ball, and so you, you might go to those and still be curious about what exactly he thinks. For instance, his most recent article is titled Eradicating Bush League Arguments, Root and Branch, the Article II Independent State Legislature Notion and Related Rubbish. Can you really be sure what he's thinking <laughs> from something like this? So instead, you might turn to more popular level sources, uh, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Hill, the Atlantic, USA Today, and on and on and on. But some of you may only read the Daily Mail or the Huffington Post, and Akhil Amar is notably absent from both. Uh, a hole in the CV, as some might say. Uh, so you could turn to his seven books, uh, most recently The Words That Made Us, to start to identify what it is that Akhil Amar really thinks. Some people are concerned, though. You may know that uh, Professor Amar carries his books with him, and some are concerned that he may stop writing uh, to save his back. He can't continue to carry all of these books. Uh, so finally, you might turn to the Supreme Court. You might read their opinions. He's been cited in over 45 of them at this point, the most of any scholar in his generation. Or you might uh, most recently read Supreme Court amicus briefs, where he's just written one on Moore v. Harper with Vic Amar and Stephen Calabresi, who does not speak for the Federalist Society. Um <laughs> uh, but uh, Andy Lipka had a different solution. He said, for all of those who just don't read and don't watch The West Wing, maybe we can give something to listeners. And uh, they brought us America's Constitution. It launched on January 20, 2021. They said that it would be weekly. And for two years straight, they have put it out every single week. Uh, we've just passed the 100 episode mark. And uh, we've had guests from Bob Woodward to Alan Dershowitz to Nadine Strassen. But today, the most esteemed guest of all enters the show, which is the students of Yale Law School. 
And so we'll be participating as guests in this show today. Uh, the microphone right there will be available for us. Please only use that one because that's the one that feeds into the podcast. Uh, so we'll use that. Uh, let's give them a round of applause and thanks for being here. Well, I'm going to speak first just to thank you for, uh, for inviting us and um, to say uh, to all of you what I say to our listeners every week, which is welcome to America's Constitution. So um, we're here for our, our audience at, uh, at Yale at a place that is known as, as formerly known as the number one law school in the country. And um, the reason it's formerly to our audience uh, will become clear as, uh, as we go through our discussions today. Uh, this morning, the dean of the Yale Law School, Heather Gerken, announced that Yale will no longer participate in the US News and World Report uh, rankings of law schools. So therefore, this is the law school to be ranked earlier, I suppose. Um, so I, um, I want to thank Teddy and Robert Capitolupo for inviting us. Um, and to the Yale Federalist Society in general. Uh, we're going to talk, we've been talking recently about the Federalist Society on America's Constitution. We had Steve Calabresi on for two episodes. Um, our audience here today, uh, in-person audience, has only heard one of those episodes. Um, the other one hasn't aired yet, but um, it will be airing uh, before this does. So it's a little confusing time-wise, but that's, that's the sort of temporal organization. So anyway, you all are the guests today. You're going to join Bob Woodward and Nadine Strassen and Floyd Abrams and Linda Greenhouse and Ed Whalen and many other luminaries who have appeared and will appear. Uh, Stephen Breyer will be joining a, a Marcus Constitution before too long, he's promised. So, but today it's going to be more about you guys, um, and the reason is that America's Constitution seeks to explore what we call the constitutional ecosphere. Um, so it's more than just what's going on with the nine uh, wise men and women in Washington, but also what's uh, happening here at Yale Law School and at other law schools around the country. And I guess within the law school, because FedSoc is a particularly interesting um, subset of, of Yale Law. So um, you're going to be our guest. We're going to let you have the, have the floor. Um, we're going to you know, paint the floor with some questions, and hopefully you'll respond to them. And, but I want our audience out there to get a perspective on Yale FedSoc. This is something that you know, people don't know much about what goes on in Yale Law School, and they certainly don't know much about what goes on in Yale FedSoc. So you're going to be educating you know, our, our audience and our nation. Our nation. Um, so with that, I just want to turn it over to Akil for his introductory remarks, and then we'll get going. So just to set the scene, since this is an audio podcast, there are about 50 Yale Law students um, here in room 127, and they are our guests today, and Andy is going to ask them questions, and with luck, they will answer them. Indeed. So I'd, first, I'd like to get some commentary from anybody that has a reaction to the, uh, the announcement this morning about the uh, withdrawal from the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Um, did you hear about it? What was your reaction? Have you heard anything about the rationale that was put forth? Do you agree with it? Um, what do you think the consequences will be of this action? So I'd like to hear some comments on that. Um, we're about to hear from Robert Capodilupo, who is a president of the Federal Society and in the Small World Department, um, has been my teaching assistant, and if he wants, will be my teaching assistant again. I am very excited for it. 
Um, so I think uh, I, like many other people, are pretty disappointed by this news. It seems to me equivalent to playing the game of Monopoly, knowing that you're losing, and then flipping the game board. It is indicative of the fact that it seems like the administration is aware that it may not continue to be number one in the rankings either this year in the future. And over the course of the past 30 years, I think the reason that Yale has been able to sort of march to the beat of its own drum is because it's ranked number one. And now that it won't be, I think it loses that uh, credibility. I have enjoyed my time here. I think that part of the reason a lot of people go to Yale Law School is because of its ranking and the value of it. And I think that the reason why the administration wants to get out of the ranking system may be to be able to pursue certain agenda items that aren't really um, valued by a lot of members of the student body. And that without having this check on the decisions of the administration, it really seems like there's no way to curb uh, arbitrary power. And so I think that for everyone, past, present, and future, who has a Yale Law degree, this choice devalues that. And I'm fearful that Yale will lose its prominence in the legal world in the future because of the path that it's been on and because of uh, this further choice made today. Before you leave, Robert, could, uh, the microphone there, um, you mentioned that um, you think there are programs that the university might want to pursue or the law school might want to pursue that would wind up decreasing its rankings. Do you have specific things in mind or at least specific areas of programming in mind? Well, it seems to be that so much of the rankings is focused on test scores and GPAs. And if the law school wants to continue having some sort of holistic process, um, even after that will likely be deemed illegal this spring, then the rankings will probably not um, uh, do its service in continuing that process. Um, And I I think that uh, keeping that admissions a system is, is not a great thing for the university and that this will just provide another way for them to be able to not go by more clear metrics um, without having any public scrutiny of that choice. Thank you. I'm Azad Marcelazani. I'm a first year. I kind of want to speak narrowly on it a little bit. I think some aspects are good, some aspects are bad. I don't like how U.S. News' metrics are kind of not nearly tailored to how good of an education you're probably getting at these schools. For example, how many seats are, like how big the libraries are, I don't think directly correlate with how good of an education you're getting here. Um, I think some metrics, for example, debt, don't do a good job of really giving an understanding of how much you're getting for your services. Um, I think a better metric would be like financial aid divided by tuition plus uh, living expenses. And I think this is kind of some sort of retaliation against U.S. News because no one other, other law schools, I believe, have not directly retaliated in a significant way of saying, U.S. News, your metrics are not good at telling what people, whether or not what good law schools are good or not. Um, and I think this is one way of doing it. I don't think this means Yale won't, I, I don't know what Gherkin thinks, but I don't think this says Yale will never come back, but it's some sort of voice of opposition to, for U.S. News to change and become more narrowly tailored to what makes a good law school a good law school. 
So just to follow up on that, do you think that this is the most effective thing that Yale could have done um, if, if its goal is to affect change in the rankings? Or do you think, could you envision another strategy that would have been better? I mean, I don't mind? know if like the law schools talk with U.S. News and there's some deliberation back and forth. I know for a lot of undergraduates, rankings that universities have tried to communicate with U.S. News and U.S. News has been very rigid um, in its metrics. Um, but I don't know what sort of dealings, if Yale has sort of reached out, I don't know how U.S. News sort of adopts. They don't really, they're really small office, I believe, in D.C., and they're very unsophisticated in how they develop their metrics. Um, and they haven't really responded, I think, adequately in the past to opposition um, because they know they're, they're the only name in town and everyone looks to U.S. News. Thank you. I think uh, in the statement by from Dean Gherkin today, she does say, that they had reached out to U.S. News uh, together with some other schools a number of years ago, and they weren't satisfied with the response. Um, on the other hand, I think it's notable that Yale is the only school that I'm aware of that is withdrawing at this time, even though other schools may have, have reached out. Um, okay, so do you think this will have any effect on FedSoc in particular? So if we think about the Federalist Society at, at Yale as an organization, do you think that this, uh, that you see the future, you know, under this, after this action, as being something that will be affected, um, that FedSoc will be particularly affected? Van Auger, I'm a 3L. I, I would say all else equal yes. I mean, looking at the Federal Society over the, the past year plus now, uh, one of our saving graces has been these external accountability mechanisms, whether that's the media, um, whether that's judges announcing boycotts, whether that's potential and, and now never to be realized changes in the rankings. Uh, we, we've relied, to, to Robert's point, on these external checks of accountability. And it's concerning to me that over the past year, we're seeing an administration that is shrinking and running away from the prospect of accountability. The recording policy was almost certainly motivated by this. Um, the movement from the wall to something that's far less widespread and frankly far less red than what previously existed. Now, there, there's a wonderful narrative uh, in this email that, that you know, mentions nothing about that in the movement away from the ranking, but, but I would remind everyone that this email is coming from an administration that one of, two, one of you two once described as dishonest, duplicitous, and downright deplorable. So I would uh, you know, interpret any of the statements today from the dean's office with a very large grain of salt. Thank you. Before you leave, you mentioned the uh, the recording policy and and the wall. Um, um, could you explain to our audience, our wider audience, what those are? So yeah, so in in the past year, there was um, an incident where uh, a member of the dean's administration effectively gave the higher ed version of that's a wonderful legal career you have. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. And I would argue that one of the saving graces that, that helped keep that, that student in good standing was that there was a recording of that conversation. And conveniently at the end of that year, that, that Dean voluntarily retired uh, for, for those listening, there were some air quotes there. Um, and as of this year, there is a policy kind of categorically banning recording in any instance where, where state law, um, I believe, was, was the kind of dividing line um, for, for what is permitted. And, and it's my understanding that that type of recording uh, would be illegal. Um, as for the, the wall and the email policy historically, um, what started as a physical wall that students could post announcements on turned into a 
class and law school community-wide uh, distribution list and a lot of the kind of uh, debates or, or, or in criticism and, and protests that occurred over the past year um, and a lot of the attacks on FedSoc were kind of orchestrated and promulgated through that. Um, and as a result of that, I would suspect the, the administration last year kind of shut down that email uh, list serve and replaced it back with a physical wall. I think that accountability argument is a powerful argument. Um, what would you propose that the university, if, if the university, if the law school said, well, okay, that's a good argument, we want to remain accountable in some way, but we don't want to rejoin the U.S. news rankings, what would you propose as an alternative method of being accountable? Um, I mean, assuming that there's not an objection to ranking as such, and I, I don't see a reason why there should be, um, the folks in this law school's administration, in this law school's faculty, know the faculty in other schools. There is a lot of brain power in the T14 and the legal academy generally. And I, I'm sure that if you put enough of those brains together, they could come up with some sort of metric that, that would work, that folks could agree upon. The same way that we have an LSAT, right? You know, if, if that's, and if that proves to be a bad metric, there, there are other tests that can come and compete. And I think you could do the same thing with rankings. It's, it's not clear to me that it's, you know, U.S. news or, or bust, you know. Okay, so you're proposing that there be another uh, agreed-upon ranking system that, to take its place. Okay. Um, there probably are other ranking systems now, aren't there? Akil, are there other ranking systems of law schools that are, that are out there? I like to rank according to citations of, of faculty, <laughs> but, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> okay, thank you. Hi, um, my name Hi. is Alan. I'm a 3L. Um, I agree with everything Vanja said. I think I'll just add that, um, as it relates to FedSoc specifically, in addition to being, you know, ideologically conservative, my sense is that our members tend to be, like, small-c conservative with respect to their careers. And if you look at the stated reasons why Dean Gherkin has made the change that she has, it's to increase the amount of um, salience that, like, law school-funded fellowships, public interest fellowships have. And I think at the risk of overgeneralizing, a lot of our members came to Yale to get a good legal education and a good job at, you know, a big law firm. And um, I think that it just demonstrates, the change demonstrates a change in institutional priority away from the types of things that our members tend to pursue and towards things that, again, at the risk of overgeneralizing, politically progressive students tend to pursue. So, um, of course, there are still other ways to obtain the information on percentage of students that go into, you know, big law jobs, percentage of students that get judicial clerkships, but uh, I think that this change reveals a sort of shifting institutional priority away from supporting students like us. So if, if indeed it is a shifting institutional priority, does that make it wrong? I mean, so someone needs to determine institutional priorities, right? So um, do you object to the process by which those are being determined, or do you feel that, it, that, uh, you know, that the institution may have certain priorities, but that this, re this doesn't necessarily reflect it because of the way this decision was arrived at, um, to the extent that we know how it was arrived at? Um, I, I think that viewed in isolation, of course there's no issue with the school having um, prioritizing uh, fellowships in this manner, but if you look at sort of the combined weight of all of the different decisions the administration has made in the past year and the past three years, it's, it's pretty clear that they have, in my opinion, systematically avoided um, you know, supporting their uh, conservative students 
um, in a pretty systemic way. And I think that this is just further evidence of that. And I think it would be a shame if, although they are well within their rights to do so, if Yale became a school identified as such only for progressive and liberal students and to be a place where conservatives wouldn't welcome. I, I, I think that would be do a disservice to conservative students, but also to everyone here at the, at the Yale Law School. I think it would make everyone's educations worse. I see. So you're saying then that there's, um, because of this shift in priorities that you, that you perceive, um, that this disfavors conservative students because they tend to, uh, in your view, pursue big law or something like that. Um, uh, so, and do you, you feel that this is uh, therefore a pretext at, at trying to have ideological, uh, you know, monotone, um, or, or that is just an unfortunate, in your view, an unfortunate side effect? Um, I think more of the latter. Um, I, I trust that Dean Gerken genuinely does want to um, increase the amount of public interest fellowships at this school. Um, but I think that, you know, going to the process point, um, it seems like, you know, many faculty were not consulted. It seems like certainly a large percentage of the student body wasn't consulted, if any at all. And so I think that it just demonstrates a, a set of priorities that don't align with ours. Um, Akil, can I ask you at all about the process? Are you, do you have any information that you want to share about the process? Or, or um, can, you, can you tell me what you think the process for this should be? Whether or not you agree or disagree with the decision, um, can you talk about the process by which it was arrived at? I don't know. So you, so you, you obviously, therefore, were not part of the process. Um, the, the dean speaks for the school, and the dean, um, I would guess, consults some folks. Um, I wasn't consulted, I, but I don't know who may have been. All that said, I'm not sure she made the wrong decision. She may have made the right decision, but maybe um, I wouldn't have agreed with all the reasons she put forth um, for them. Um, but uh, our audience might want to take a look at a piece that I wrote several years ago in the Los Angeles Times criticizing the rankings and saying that in truth there was no number one school across all the metrics. Um, it's in the LA Times, and we will we'll upload it on the podcast. Um, and uh, um, I think I think I appeared the pretty big picture, in fact, of, of me in the very first U.S. News um, ranking. I think this was back in '85, '86, something like that. Um, and we've been number one every year. I, I have in the past said, you know, that the rankings are flawed. We should get out. We should get out while we're number one. Um, and so people don't think it's sour grapes or, or anything like that. Maybe we should have gotten out a few years um, earlier. Um, so I'm not sure it's the right, wrong decision. Um, I'm not sure I agree with the, the reasons. Dean probably can't consult um, everyone. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm talking out of school if I say she didn't ask me. She may have thought, actually, uh, that, I'd, that I'd agree with her because I said some things in the past very much um, uh, critical um, of the rankings, I do think there are lots of metrics um, uh, that people ca can use. And I, I was being a little bit cutesy, um, but, but I actually do think citations are relevant fa uh, in t uh, for faculty strength. Uh, school is defined in part by its strength of its student body, and, but also by the strength of its faculty. In constitutional law, I think 
we are particularly interested not just in citations by scholars, and we should be interested in that, but also citations by especially the Supreme Court. Now, that's not going to be a great metric for all sorts of other faculty specialties, but in constitutional law, um, I actually think Supreme Court citations is a relevant metric, and you heard Teddy mention something in that um, register, and, and I think citations to, um, from other scholars is, is a metric. There, there are many metrics, and people have choices, so let's get information out there. I will say that from a strategic point of view, I, I, I have to question it, because um, apparently a number of schools consulted um, with U.S. News and World Report in the past and offered them an opportunity to, to cure or whatever. They didn't take it. Okay. So that means there are other schools that are unhappy, presumably, with, with the rankings. Well, I think that um, it's possible that Yale withdrawing will hurt Yale in some ways. Like the, the people sitting in this room, I don't think they're going to really find that this is going to help them in any particular way. Um, and it, it may well hurt them if they apply for a job or something like that. And, okay, so you could say, well, you know, maybe it would have been better to do it together with a bunch of other schools, and these same <coughs> schools that had this objection. Now, the fact so, that those so schools... Hang, hang well, hold on. on, let me just finish my point. And, and because the other schools are not doing it, um, you might presume that Yale may have reached out to them and said, why don't you do it with us? And if they said no, that means they're not going to do it, so that Yale is at a disadvantage now relative to, to these peer institutions that had the same complaints that Yale did. So the, these are some complexities. Since this is a law school, I'll give you some law stuff on this. So first of all, um, there are genuine antitrust issues that would be raised if you actually tried to um, uh, uh, coordinate with other schools, create a cartel, um, or to borrow from my friend Jim Ho, a boycott of any sort. Um, and we're going to talk about the Jim Ho boycott. So there are actually some antitrust concerns. Ian Ayers has written about this in many contexts. If you actually tried to create a horizontal agreement in restraint of trade, so to speak. It will be interesting to see if anyone else simply chooses to follow Yale's lead. Um, Yale has taken the lead here rather than following, and Yale is a leader. And um, again, I'm not sure I agree with her reasons, but if a whole bunch of other schools um, actually follow suit, that will be very interesting indeed, won't it? If anyone's going to take the lead, here's why it should be Yale, because there are only two schools um, ever um, in any field ever ranked by U.S. News that have never been less than number one. They are the Harvard Medical School and the Yale Law School. We've been ranked number one or tied for number one every single year. And to repeat, there, there was a nice picture of me, big picture, back when U.S. News actually was a print magazine in, in the very first um, issue. Um, now, um, so we're the only two, I think, that could do it, Harvard Med School and Yale Law School, um, and about which it, it would be uh, less plausible to say, oh, this is just sour grapes. You, you know, it, um, so, and Harvard Med School is maybe in the process of losing number one because I think NYU just went free for everyone. So Harvard Med School is maybe about to lose its special status. I'm not sure that's actually true of you. So if you're going to do it, get while the getting's good. Um, um, there are justices on the Supreme Court who might think about getting while the getting's good. RBG maybe should have gotten while the getting was good. So, so you know, time to leave is, you know, when you're on, um, uh, on top, it will be, uh, and, and to repeat, the two schools that have preeminent credibility in this are Harvard Med School and Yale Law School because we're the only schools that have never been ranked less 
than number one. There's a bilateral monopoly kind of issue here. We have some, you know, prestige and bargaining power, so does U.S. News and World Report. So I'm not sure anyone else could have done it in the law world. Um, and, um, and I'm not sure, if I were uh, Dean Gherkin's uh, legal advisor, um, that I would have said, oh, you should try to coordinate this with other schools because th- th- you, you could be looking at an antitrust lawsuit, actually. There really is a problem sometimes, and this is complicated. This is what actually Robert Bork actually didn't just teach common law. He taught antitrust. He wrote a very interesting book, The Antitrust Paradox. Leagues are um, sometimes exceptions because they're actually designed to, they're, they're horizontal agreements to sometimes create a sense of, of um, um, fair competition and c- fair codes. But, but if, if they were done in other areas of, of life, um, this would be complicated. Universities sometimes actually can coordinate on some things, the common app, the um, uh, common reply date agreement and all the rest. Uh, the, the Ivy League, in theory, was actually designed, it was it's actually a, 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 um, a set of rules about sports. Um, but there are complexities if you actually um, uh, use the, some, some, the special rules that sometimes allow um, competitors to, to cooperate with each other and come up with agreements, like the Ivy League, the Big Ten, um, Common App. Um, there are some complexities, actually, if... You're, you're, you're doing this to restrain um, checks on um, each of you, um, uh, uh, outside auditing and, and assessments and evaluation. So there's some really, um, the, and, and the, the world's expert on antitrust um, as applied to educational institutions is um, my friend and colleague, the, the great um, Ian Ayers, who, by the way, is very widely cited. Just, just here to add uh, another comment. This is James. Thank you. Thank you for saying my name. Uh, that you have to give us your last name. Do I have to? Yes. All right. And, and, and this will um, um, appear in your confirmation hearings in 15 years. I'm never going to be nominated. So. <laughs> uh, James Altrell, I'm a 3L. Uh, first things first, I would like to congratulate Harvard on regaining the number four spot <laughs> in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. And uh, it looks like... Gulk might be back in the T14 as well, so congratulations to our, our peers there. That's the Georgetown University Law Center. Um, regarding the point about rankings, you know, far be it from me to claim that the U.S. News and World Report ranking is anything like an objective measure. I have no uh, strong opinion about that in particular. If we wanted to go with something like citations, that, that would be perfectly fine by me. Uh, I agree that if Yale had gotten out while the getting was in fact good, this might have been a sign of strength. But I think that everyone observing the situation realizes that Yale is not getting out while the getting is good. Yale is getting out now because it's afraid of slipping. And everyone knows it's afraid of slipping. Its peer prestige rankings have been slipping. Over the past two years, the administration has been behaving in a way that makes it look like a complete clown show. It's been threatening students. It's getting boycotted by federal judges. And now, after all of that, when it looks like the writing's on the wall and it might finally drop out of T1 for the first time in the rankings history, it says, uh, you know, I quit. I'm not fired, I quit. And that's what's going on. And that doesn't look very strong to me. It actually looks very weak and humiliating and embarrassing to me. And I think that's how it's going to look to most other people. It's certainly how it should look to most other people. 
And will this be good for conservative students at Yale Law School? I don't have a strong opinion about that, but uh, I tend to think that anything that makes this institution look, let's say, more like it should deserve to look in public is a, a good thing for society as a whole. So I'm a fan of the news, and I applaud Dean Gherkin on the decision. Wow. <laughs> okay, that was, uh, that was damning with faint praise, I would say. Um, <clears throat> So there's a lot to say on this still, but let's let's just move on since, uh, as I as Akil predicted, time was going to pass uh, faster than usual here. Um, a couple of people have mentioned the notion of a boycott when it comes to uh, judi- judges. So I'm interested in the reaction of uh, of, of the students here to uh, the comments by Judge Ho. Um, and I, b- I believe there, there was, were there any other judges that, uh, yes, well, there were, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, 11 or 12, most of whom were not publicly mentioned, but I bet the people in this room know who some of those uh, judges, are, um, in fact are. So, um, Jim Ho is a very distinguished federal court of appeals judge. Um, and he's conservative. Um, he worked closely with Senator Cornyn, um, in, uh, before becoming a federal uh, judge, and he has announced that uh, he's not going to be hiring prospectively uh, Yale Law School graduates, and he's urging um, his, uh, especially his conservative colleagues on the federal bench, to do the same. He's kind of announcing a boycott, so to speak, of Yale Law School graduates. Uh, Dean Gherkin has responded by inviting him to come to the school. I think he's doing so on November 29th and 30th, he um, has reached out to me and said, hey, I'm going to be in town. Uh, can we get together? I said, that's great. And he has, Andy, you know, um, had for some time a standing invitation to appear as our guest uh, on America's Constitution. We reached out to him six months ago, seven months ago, and um, and our audience will hear from uh, Judge Ho at, at some point. He's uh, uh, one of the many, many interesting people that we um, have arranged to, to have as, as guests on this podcast. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Kevin Boschman. I'm a 1L. Uh, so one thing I just want to talk about this issue, linking it back to uh, Alan's point from earlier about uh, external accountability. I, I can't really speak for the judges. I wouldn't try to, but I think there's an element in their decision-making. It was about a theory of change. It was about how uh, do they put pressure on Yale Law School from where they sit uh, on a metric that Yale Law School cares about, which is the clerkships and how that feeds into uh, potential school rankings. And so just from kind of a tactical maneuvering standpoint, it's a very interesting move now uh, on Yale Law School's behalf to basically sh- short circuit that. So I think it leaves a very interesting question of uh, what can judges do now to affect the theory of change, change their theory of change as it might be, and continue to put pressure. I think uh, it's an important thing that we have external advocates. uh, And uh, I think the take is that these judges really were advocating for, especially members of the Federalist Society and conservative students. uh, And by short circuiting that, I think one of my concerns is without the external uh, kind of accountability, and now without the potential for external advocacy, uh, who is going to stand up for those organizations within Yale Law School? So let me actually, you know, push back on that. Um, 
Jim Ho is not a graduate of the Yale Law School. Is he really a friend of the FedSoc? He's actually saying he's not going to hire any of you, and he's urging all his uh, federal judicial colleagues not to hire any of you. And is he actually putting pressure on Yale, or, or actually is he punishing members of the Yale FedSoc? Hmm. Um, lots of um, other conservative judges are willing to hire you all, and I say good for them. Um, I think in particular of my special friend Amul Thapara. I'm mentioning him because he's also been invited to um, come um, on the podcast. He worked closely with Senator McConnell in a way that Jim Ho worked closely with Senator Cornyn, a federal judge is a lawyer who once knew a senator. That's the legal realist definition. Steve Breyer was Senate Judiciary Committee counsel, just saying. So these are, these are people, um, Amul and, and Jim, who are similarly matched. They happen to be Asian American. They happen to be conservative. They happen to be on short lists for the Supreme Court, I would guess, for any prospective um, Republican administration. And Amul Thapar is not doing this to you all. He's hiring, actually, the best folks from FedSoc, and I'm actually with him truth be told. You can say, oh, you're, you're standing up for the Yale FedSoc in doing this, but did the Yale FedSoc ask Jim Ho to do this? To not hire them. Uh, to <laughs> not hire them, I'd, you know. Um, um, so maybe that's what you're doing. I like Jim. Jim, and I'm going to ask you this question when you come on. Are you grandstanding? Okay, and I'll let you answer that question when you come uh, on the podcast, but I'm going to ask you that question. Um, when you come on the podcast. And I invited you on the pod, to join the podcast many, many months uh, ago. Um, so, but now you have fair warning of one of the questions that, that you're going to get asked when uh, uh, you come on the podcast. Are you grandstanding? Um, and you're not doing it with your own money. Um, you're doing it with government money. Um, and, and you're not just announcing for yourself. You're actually encouraging other people uh, to engage in a certain kind of cartel-like um, horizontal agreement. And Hmm, is all I'll say. Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument, I think, that if, if let's assume for a moment that the U.S. News and World Report rankings are very wise, and that by ranking Yale number one, they're, they're correct. Um, and therefore, part of that might be that many of the best students are at Yale. And they, therefore, might make the best clerks after they get the best legal education. And you, Jim Ho, as a conservative... Uh, judge might be likely to hire Yale FedSoc people. So, you know, where is the logic, where is the public interest being served? If you want the best clerks to be the best judge you can be, how are you doing that, by, you know, by doing this? So, Hi, my name is Kyle Vegas. I'm a 3L, and I'd just like to follow up with that. Um, you know, whatever, there are two different aspects to Judge Ho's boycott. Um, the intent of it, and, you know, whether that, whatever, whether the intent will manifest as he desires it. And when it comes to the first aspect of it, I don't have any doubts that the intent is good. I think he really wants to affect change in the way that Kevin just stated before. Um, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, there were two very egregious scandals that happened here involving the Federalist Society. And as you explained in quite, uh, quite wonderfully alliterative terms, um, you know, th those weren't handled extremely well by the administration. And it took a tremendous amount of external pressure for the university to even acknowledge that those were indeed scandals, um, let alone respond to it appropriately. Now, the, the repetition of, of the second scandal following the first one shows that, you know, the university, the administration 
really didn't take the first scandal extremely seriously. And now I will say things do seem, the climate here does seem to have improved this semester. Um, from what I hear from 1Ls and, and the, the free speech climate among their class, um, it does seem like it has gotten better. But, you know, it's only been a few months and we'll see whether that has changed. I think Judge Ho probably looks at the school and says, you know, not much has changed after two incredibly egregious scandals. And, you know, there needs to be more external pressure put on the school. So my thought on all of that is, why not ask Yale FedSoc? Um, so Dean Gherkin, gets, she's the dean. She gets to make a decision. Um, but did she ask, let's say, Robert, who would in turn ask Robert Capodilupo, ask you all, you know, what you think um, if she were contemplating a certain move? She'd have to trust you to treat certain things confidentially. Um, Robert's my TA, I trust him to treat certain things confidentially, and he's never betrayed my trust. So if you actually care what FedSoc thinks, um, if you're the dean of the Yale Law School, oh, you could ask the president of FedSoc. If, Jim Ho, if you actually care uh, what um, Yale FedSoc thinks, you could reach out to Yale FedSoc folks and, and get their um, views on all this. And I'm not sure that they did that. And if Jim Ho did that, then I'd be, you know, more generous. Um, but if, they, if he didn't do that, I would say, why didn't you do that? To repeat, are you just grandstanding? Because some of the costs are going to be visited upon Yale FedSoc members. Maybe some of the benefits, if, there, if change occurs, will um, accrue to Yale FedSoc uh, members, but but why not ask Yale FedSoc? Um, when when I have questions about Yale FedSoc, I actually try to ask you all. Um, I try to reach out and say, what does Yale FedSoc think about faculty diversity um, or our curricular offerings or um, about what have you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that the, that he didn't, uh, that Judge Ho didn't have specific criteria. He said, okay, when this happens then I will lift my, my boycott. I mean, maybe that would have been a little more reasonable, say, you know, whatever. You know, if, if I, we do a survey of viewpoint diversity and it reaches this level, uh, then, that, then I'll lift my boycott or something like that. But I, my understanding is that that's not the case. Yeah, if I just may follow that up, I, I think, you know, both this and last year's events do highlight the need for a conservative public law faculty member to join the Yale Law School because we really don't have an internal advocate and that's why we need to turn to external measures sometimes and that's why I think a lot of members of the conservative legal movement feel a responsibility to affect what's going on at Yale Law School. And we do have Professor Amar who has been a wonderful advocate for us. I, I really can't say that enough. But as you've explained on this podcast many times, you are an originalist but not a conservative. Correct. And we do need a true conservative public law faculty member who, you know, does have influence within the university and can advocate for us on the inside. I think that, you know, I, I think both this year and last year's events really highlight the need for that. I agree with that. And indeed, that was actually, I, I gave Andy a list of questions, uh, but then it was overtaken by uh, recent events. So we, we started differently. I think really that was one of the biggest things that I wanted Andy to ask you all about. So Andy, maybe we could, we could go to that question mm -hmm. about um, um, faculty diversity and, uh, and, and how, that, how you all think about that, how you think about um, that kind of diversity versus demographic diversity, what, what you think about conservative representation or lack thereof um, on the public law 
um, side of uh, the theological faculty. We want to hear from you on that. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, I do. I do, and I do want to hear from from, from you on that. I think the point that was just made uh, is very important. This notion that there is no one, not one, apparently conservative faculty member that you guys feel that you can go to as a as a mentor or something like that. On the public law side of the right. curriculum, the, sort of the con law side um, and related fields. Now, there are visiting faculty. For example, you know, Steve Calabresi has been visiting professor at the Yale Law School for, for what, five years, something like that? I think at least nine, and yeah. he and I co-teach together every year. We typically co-teach a class, among other things, on originalism. Uh, um, I think we've done that for the last five or six years straight, but I think he and I have co-taught together for um, nine years straight now. So I guess, I guess that's valuable, but it's not the same, I suppose, as someone that has you know, regular what, office hours and you know, whatever else that, uh, you know, that, that and is involved. Voting privileges, mm-hmm. a public platform, all sorts of things. Right. This thing called tenure. Um, there, 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 there are a lot of differences between um, someone who's a visitor and someone who's a, a full-fledged, tenured faculty member. So, um, so the question I would ask then is, can you can you put a little you know collar on this in terms of how does it affect your lives at the Yale Law School that this is the situation? Um, now I know you were waiting to ask a, possibly a different question, but so you can ask that or this or both. Uh, no, I'll try to speak to those comments. Uh, Thank you both for being here. I'm Nick Maurer. I'm a 2L. Um, and I was planning to speak about the Judge Ho boycott, but I'll talk about diversity. I think the thing that disappoints me most about uh, Dean Gherkin's announcement this morning was it really felt like we were making some progress finally after a year last year that really was quite bad. Uh, we just had early this week an event with Jonathan Mitchell. Uh, and Akilah Mar that was attended by over 100 students, and there was no protests, and we worried there would be, but there weren't, and I thought that was very good. It's been much quieter this semester, and we have had a visiting professor who is a conservative public law professor. I'm in his presidential powers class right now, and I've been really enjoying it. The problem is now, as I see it, by removing Yale from the public law uh, U.S. News and World Report rankings, all those measures of accountability, which I think were important for making these uh, moderate gains that we've been making, uh, goes away. And so now there's no outside accountability. Uh, there are no peer rankings to hold Yale accountable. And if Dean Gherkin refuses to hire a full-time public law conservative professor, then there's no internal accountability either. Akilah Mar- Professor Mar is just one man. He can't do it all himself. We need a public law uh, faculty member who is a true conservative in order to hold uh, Dean Gherkin and the administration accountable if they're going to remove these outside metrics of accountability by withdrawing from U- U.S. News and World Report. Thank you. Please. Hi, my name is Kevin Bazin and I'm a 1L. I won't speak uh, to the boycott or to the rankings, but when it comes to, I think, conservative scholarship, I think the, and I'm a 1L, so I'm new here, but I have actively had to go out of my way and be proactive about trying to get multiple versions of the story. Um, And, you know, case in point, not having ready access to, um, I think, originalist ideas, other forms of textualism and arguments that are set from the tone of the faculty 
in class discussion, I think a lot of conversations and a lot of the legal analysis tends to lean one way. And as someone who wants to embrace a wide variety of ideological thought, while I recognize demographic diversity as being important to uh, diverse thought, I think ideological as well as other forms of diversity are equally as important. And I would think that I would heavily benefit from being able to readily access conservative faculty and say, hey, this is something that I heard or this is something that I read and I looked at it through this legal analysis, what would an alternative form of thought be able to contribute to this argument? And I have to really go outside of my way in order to make that happen. So I think I would definitely appreciate if there was a wider range of thought here at the law school. And Kevin, I don't want to embarrass you, but since this is an audio and not a video podcast, how do you demographically self-identify? I am a black man. Okay. So you. Um, you, you, uh, before you leave the microphone, Kevin, um, so you, I take it you have a conservative uh, viewpoint in general. I do. Yeah. So and I'm, I am also a FedSoc member. Yes. And that was the case before you came to Yale Law School as well. That was, well, I wasn't a FedSoc member before I came to Yale right, Law but School. You were, but but you, your political orientation. I think I have was, nuanced politics, but I lean more right than left. Okay. So with that, you had, um, did you consider other law schools um, when, you, uh, when you made your decision? And do you think that um, what you have expressed here now, um, did, would that enter into your your decision differently if you had to do over again? Well, largely speaking, I did consider other law schools, but for different reasons. Uh, I think the primary reason I came to Yale Law School um, was because of faculty to student ratio, clerkship placements, um, individualized, I think they call it uh, create your own adventure kind of study uh, and approach to law school. And that's something that just wasn't found in other places that I had been admitted to. Um, however, I can't, I can't readily say that there was more access to originalism and conservatism at other law schools that I got admitted to. So that wasn't um, mm -hmm. a huge factor. That being said, I did also take into account all of the things that were played out in the press uh, regarding Yale Law School and conservative students uh, before I arrived. And so I did kind of come in with a framework that certain things may be more or less accessible. I'm just wondering, thank you. I'm, I'm wondering for, perhaps this doesn't apply to you, but yeah, please. Um, but in general, to the audience, I'm looking for maybe someone who um, maybe chose between Yale and Harvard or something like that, Harvard with a dean that's, you know, more conservative and a much larger faculty. A dean know. who clerked for uh, Justice Scalia and who um, self-identifies as a federal, federal FedSoc affiliate. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you say, well, I'm looking at it now and maybe that's, you know, a checkbox in, in Harvard's favor. But if Yale hired, let's say, one or two public law conservatives, that would be enough for me to negate that, given all the pluses I see at Yale. I mean, is there anybody that would agree with that or disagree with it or, uh, you know, has that point of view? I know it's, uh, it's tough to get anybody to, to come to a microphone and say anything good about Harvard. Um, <laughs> please. Well, I have a, a slightly different this, point this, of view. This is Teddy. Uh, the, uh, sorry, yes, Teddy Ray, second year here. 
Um, I, I knew what I was getting when I came here. There, there were no illusions about what I was getting. And I, I believe that my experience would be significantly better if there were more viewpoint diversity. Uh, taking the originalism seminar with uh, Calabresi and Amar is, is the viewpoint diversity here uh, on, on the public law. Um, but I knew I was getting this and I wanted to come because it, I knew it would test me. Mm-hmm. and that I would be presented with sides that I didn't naturally agree with. And I thought that was really important. I would actually turn your question. You're asking how bad it is for conservative students. I, I, I want to suggest that I think it's actually more harmful to progressive students here that they don't ever have to be challenged in what they think and what they believe. And I, I, I would imagine you can skate through Harvard Law School the same way if you choose to, but you also have more opportunities to be challenged to be tried. Uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to come here. And so, so I wonder for our progressive students, if they're just missing a great opportunity to be exposed to how a full half of our judiciary thinks. And they're, they're going to go and argue before judges whom they simply don't understand because they've never had to encounter it. No, I think it's, those, are, those are powerful points. So do you got, So does Yale FedSoc, let's talk a little bit about the nature of Yale FedSoc. Do you engage... Um, mostly in you do you try to create a conservative bubble or do you within within Yale or do you engage with the with the progressive students in any kind of formal way do you have debates with them you know how what where, where what's the role of FedSoc on this campus uh, vis-a-vis you know other other groups um Hi, I'm Toby White. I'm a 2L here, and I'm actually on the events team, and I just wanted to say briefly on this subject, we have tried repeatedly to host joint events with our more progressive counterparts or more left-leaning groups on campus. Most notably, we had an event earlier this year on climate change um, policy and West Virginia v. EPA, in which we really tried to get co-sponsorship from groups like the Yale Environmental Law Students Association, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, we get no no interaction from them. They basically refuse to host events from us. In fact, in that uh, instance, they refused to host the event and then hosted a rival event later that week on the same topic which seemed very pointed to me when we had reached out and basically put together a panel that was actually mostly liberal-leaning with only one sort of conservative voice. So we are absolutely not interested in creating a conservative bubble. We try to get speakers from kind of across the spectrum, including across the spectrum within FedSoc, which frankly has a number of sort of liberal-leaning people who view themselves as originalists or textualists or something like that. So we really are very interested in getting progressive viewpoints, but we're mostly shut down when we try to. So that seems outrageous, I have to say. Um, what what just what is the justification that's provided? Is it just you know the, is this summary judgment, or uh, or or is there some kind of explanation? Was there a, a, a past event that was you know they felt a debate was conducted in bad faith, or it was snarky, or it was whatever you know? What is what is the reason that is given? Uh, you know, usually we won't get much of an answer. It's kind of just. They don't really respond or they just say, oh, thanks, but no thanks pretty repeatedly. Um, But, you know, in more honest moments, certain members of the groups will tell us that basically just most of their members think that it's, you know, completely beyond the pale to even really engage with us, uh, that we're just basically malignant forces within the law school and within the law in general. And so they really shouldn't engage with us and our ideas in general. So question for, thank you, question for Akil. Do you think that it's the responsibility of the administration to, uh, encourage more uh, interaction among, in, in this sense, more um, active, 
ideological diversity, um, not just that people have different viewpoints, but that they engage with each other on them? Yes. Do you have any substantive suggestions? Um, I think it's not just the responsibility of the uh, administration, but of um, individual professors. It's part of our pedagogic mission um, to get people to, to talk to each other. It's why I always co-teach with Steve Calabresi whenever I have the, the opportunity. Um, and um, I urge my colleagues to do the same. It's why I always come to FedSoc events. I always hire FedSoc folks um, as part of my consortium of research assistants and, and uh, teaching assistants. Um, and and uh, in my, among my TAs, we work as a team. And we talk to each other, and, and we exchange views on, on all sorts of stuff. And, and I think we work together really well. And I'm trying to model for the school what I think um, the school should do um, more of. Um, by, whenever I'm invited to a FedSoc event, Declan isn't here, but, but whenever I'm invited, I always try to say yes. And if I say no, it's because I've got some sort of conflict. You know, I would say to other people, uh, biblically, go thou and do likewise. Maybe we can use the prestige of the podcast and, and the fact that we have a national audience. We have tried to, to do that. Uh, we bring Steve Calabresi on for multiple um, I- interviews and, and Ed Whalen, Jim Ho, has, a, has an invitation. Um, he knows that I'm going to punch him in the nose rhetorically with a question about whether he's grandstanding or not, and he, he'll have a chance to answer it. Um, and Amul Thapar knows that he has an invitation, and he knows um, just how highly I regard him. And, oh, I've got, believe it or not, I've got some friends on, on uh, the left of center, too, and, and we've brought a lot of them um, on and we'll bring more on. We're having Nina Totenberg and we're having Stephen Breyer and, and we've had Linda Greenhouse and all sorts of um, liberal lions and lionesses, you know, um, just icons. Um, um, and that's what we're trying to do with our podcast also. I, I think our podcast audience is, frankly, more ideologically diverse than many other podcast audiences. Right. But I'm talking about getting away from the what uh, a dean at uh, yeah, once to- termed for me the, the tall people um, and instead bring actually the students uh, here, maybe ask FedSoc to appoint three people, ask you know ACS or whoever to appoint three people and bring them on the podcast and debate something. Yeah, sounds great. So we're, uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately, uh, on this segment of the, uh, of the podcast. We'll, uh, we'll have some more commentary um, sup, uh, in a supplemental um, uh, section. Yeah, so thanks so much. Thank you very, very much. Really enjoyed it. So we're back in Professor Amara's office now after the uh, recording downstairs in room 127 at Sterling Law Building. And uh, we have a number of law students here with us uh, from the Fed- Federal Society that were present before or weren't and wanted to uh, add their thoughts on some of these topics. I should say that uh, in the few hours since we, uh, since we last met, Harvard has joined Yale at uh, withdrawing from the uh, U.S. News and World Report ranking, so that puts a little different, uh, different spin on things. So pe- people might want to react to that, but I'm sure they have other things to say as well. So I'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves to the audience again and then have at it. I'm Arjun. I'm a 1L. Uh, my name is Devin Froseth. 
I'm a 1L and I'm a member of the Federalist Society. Okay. One of the things we wanted to talk about was the importance of ideological diversity at YLS. I'm probably to the left or more liberal than the vast majority, I think, of FedSoc members. And I think all students at YLS, but especially students that are more liberal or progressive, really benefit from exposure to conservatism, originalism, and textualism, especially because the judiciary is becoming more and more receptive to different types of arguments. And if you don't understand those arguments, then it's going to be very difficult for you as a student to fulfill your role as a professional. We're all here at a professional school, and if our goal is to do a good job as a professional, it's not very easy to do that if you don't understand the types of arguments that are being used in our profession today. Yeah, I think, I think of course, it's good to have a viewpoint diversity, especially at an institute of higher education. Um, that's almost the point. Um, you come here to, to challenge yourself, um, to get uncomfortable, and to learn from others. Um, and it would be a shame to um, j- you know, just put yourself in a box um, and talk to people who you agree with, uh, take classes with uh, faculty um, with whom you share the same views. So uh, just having the, the different thoughts and ideas is one of the most important things, at least to me, um, in, a un- in a university. And um, the, to the extent that you, know, you can get out of your comfort zone and talk to others, I think everyone would benefit greatly from that. Um, it's funny, but uh, we, we had this conversation with Stephen Calabresi at one point, who I think I have to caveat, does not speak for the Federal Society. <laughs> but um, he's told us um, on occasion that you know, he kind of sees the members of the Federal Society here at Yale Law School as, uh, well, he sees the school as um, kind of like a, a clam. And, and the conservative students, or at least the students who are receptive to those ideas, um, as being that kind of the pearl that is formed um, in the center of the clam just by by virtue of everything goes around goes on around them. Um, so I think that's just a funny story that he likes to tell, and it kind of illustrates um, my thoughts on it as well. Well, he told me that he thought they were the Mujahideen, so I told him that, uh, yes, but the Russians don't generally invite them over for dinner. So I don't know if I've heard that one. but uh. Well, and, you know, I do think it's a, it's a, a sad state when the undergraduate uh, arm of Yale, Yale University, you know, has more... Uh, debate among people that disagree, for example, in the Yale Political Union, than the law school, which, after all, one would think that advocacy had something to do with with law school. So, so you know, in a way, this is this is low hanging fruit. I mean, it's it's obvious, right, that this should be the case. It really is not a, a heavy lift, and yet it is the way. It is. So, so why is that? Do you think? So, I think. At least one limitation is before there used to be more debates hosted between and across organizations. Now that's not the case. I can't speak for anybody, but it's clear that uh, there's at least some pressure outside of the law school that might be leading to that. Um, And I think it would be really helpful if we, at least within the law school community, can focus on having that intellectual rigor and intellectual debates because that's what the law is all about. You know, we, when we had Nadine Strassen on, and she had been the head of the ACLU for, I think, 17 years, many years. Um, and we asked her, is there any organization, you know, that you won't talk to? 
And believe me, she's talked to some really far out organizations on, on the right and the left. Um, and, and she said, you know, she wouldn't do it if she was being used as a prop. In other words, if she wasn't, if people really weren't interested in debating with her, but only in you know, ridiculing her or, or whatever. Um, but other than that, she'll, she would pretty much you know, talk to anyone. Um, I wonder if some of this uh, you know, comes out of uh, a sense that um, you know, during the Trump administration, that at, at higher levels of government, there was you know, some disregard for, for facts you know, and, and truth and things like that, and that people don't want to get involved in a debate if they think that, you know, you, that there's not going to be intellectual honesty, that people aren't going to be able to agree on things that, they, that, they, that both sides know to be true. So I'm wondering, you know, to what extent the FedSoc might be getting tarred with, uh, you know, something that perhaps it, it is not quite in sync with. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, to a degree, the school is, is shaped by external forces. Of course, um, national politics is a part of that. Um, you know, the, the debate, the debates that have gone on in national politics over the past, let's say we're in 2022 now, so let's say the past six years or more, um, you know, have kind of shaped the conversations here. Of course, we're both the one else um, talking um, on the podcast here, so we, we don't have the full perspective. Um, but it does seem like this, this dialogue has changed quite a bit. Um, but to me, what has been most striking has been how... Uh, the, the views that you might not agree with, we just silence those views instead of competing with them. Um, some views are just, for some students, they're just off the wall, um, and they're just not something that um, are really appropriate to, to, be, to be discussed. And I think to the point, to the extent that you disagree with those views, it's more productive to actually challenge them and debate them um, instead of letting them maybe fester in, sil fester, um, in privacy and, and develop without kind of the pushback. Um, so I think it does a disservice maybe to both sides when um, those views aren't challenged and they're just left to evolve um, in, in, in a box. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, this is Nick. I'm a 2L. I joined this conversation a bit late. Um, certainly lots of our institutions across our, our country have been subject to increasing polarization and, and rancor and, and a lack of ability to communicate across multiple perspectives. But if Yale is not going to lead the way in pushing back against that negative change, that turn for the worse in our society, then who is? And I think there's been a shocking lack of leadership from Dean Gherkin in fostering debate in this, in this community. And even today, this morning, you know, Dean Gherkin could have written an op-ed pointing out the problems with the U.S. News and World Report's rankings and started a conversation amongst the faculty and amongst the students. She could have consulted with us before she announced her decision. But instead, she makes a unilateral decision that all of us were blindsided by uh, that we found out not even from her. Her announcement email came out 20 minutes after the story in the Wall Street Journal about Yale withdrawing from the rankings uh, was posted. So uh, I think that there has been a lack of leadership from the administration on this issue. There's been a lot of talk, not a lot of actually uh, action or living out their words that has uh, really disappointed me, frankly. I mean, really, I would like to have representatives of, of the progressive organizations here at the same time. Of course, that's what we're talking about. Um, 
but uh, and we will have them on the podcast, I'm sure, if they are, are prepared to come on. I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, what do you think they would say as their reason for not engaging? So I'm interested in your perception of their perception. Um, you know, why it is that you, I mean, obviously they can speak for themselves, but, and we'll give them an opportunity to do so. But nevertheless, it's interesting to think about why you believe they don't want to engage with you. You know, that's a really good question. Uh, there's a lot more progressives at Yale than there are conservatives, so I don't think there'd be one common answer. But uh, I do think that there are, is a large contingent of left-of-center students at Yale who would be keen to come to FedSoc events to do to engage more uh, with people on the sides, and they're just scared. They're scared of their far-left classmates. They're scared of the reputation that they might get tarnished with outside of the law school. You know, the legal community is a small one, after all, as one of our deans yes. uh, previously uh, reminded yes. our students. It's a notorious uh, <laughs> comment from, I believe, Dean Cosgrove yes. uh, last year. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think there is a lot of concern about their own reputation, their own career prospects uh, in being seen as not fully on board with their own team. There's a lot of pressure out there in American politics in general to pick a team and stick with it. And the people you get most punished by are members of your own team, uh, at least within, within your coalitions. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure on left-wing, uh, center-left uh, Yale Law students not to engage with FedSoc for, for those reasons. And I think that's really sad, and I, I wish they would. And just to follow up on that one more thing, I think it's really important that, you know, adults, we are adults, the average Yale Law student is 25, but people who are farther along in their careers really incentivize students to engage with each other, to show that people can have careers in left-wing organizations, and also still have prominent friendships with people who are, who are right-wing or, or are, are conservative. I think that showing that people's careers aren't going to be tarnished, that uh, changing incentives to promote you know, cross-ideological communication is the way we get out of this. But that starts from the top, unfortunately, as well as being a cultural change that needs to happen amongst the students here. Can you speak of, uh, not necessarily specifically, but uh, incidents where you believe there's a, been a degree of social ostracization of, of people in your organization or you know, people you know based on political views at Yale Law School? You don't have to give me any names or anything, but uh, is this something you've observed? Because it sounds like that's, you're talking about people being canceled um, in two ways, both professionally and you know, personally or socially in some way. As, so on the campus itself, has that fear been realized? You know, certainly I think there are some students um, at Yale who are, who are far to the left who refuse to talk to people who are in FedSoc, even so much as a friendly hello as they pass them by in the halls. And I know that there were members of FedSoc both in my year and in the year below amongst the 1Ls who were very hesitant to join FedSoc at first, who waited for a couple of months before really jumping on, uh, before really jumping on because they were worried about the social backlash. So I know it is a concern that is felt amongst many students here on campus. So one thing I'm curious about is, as one else, I think we've seen the community be pretty welcoming and open. I would say, again, as a student who's to the left of most uh, FedSoc students, 
the Fed talk has been pretty welcoming and open and ideologically diverse, at least within events. They've hosted a lot of different speakers that have been enjoyable to attend. There have been debates. And I'm curious if you think that in previous years that was different, uh, either from the FedSoc side or from maybe more progressive organizations, or if now the YLS student body is becoming more tolerant or more inclusive or more cohesive. You know, I'm just one 2L. Uh, I certainly can't, like Stephen Calabresi, I also do not speak for the Federalist <laughs> Society. Um, last year was really bad in terms of campus culture, um, and it got worse as the year went on, uh, especially in the second semester, in the, in the winter semester. Uh, you know, we've not had a joint event with ACS, the American Constitution Society, for the past five years, despite uh, some of our leadership having very close relationships, interpersonal relationships, with their leadership. And that's not for lack of trying on our part. We reach out every year and ask to do a joint event with them, and, and they're always the ones, as far as I understand it, from my friends on the events team who decline our invitation. So uh, it's not for lack of trying by FedSoc that we have been unable to have these joint events with other student organizations here at Yale Law. You know, uh, Steve Calabresi in his interview with us said that we asked him about ACS, and he said that there's uh, pressure on the uh, individual campus organizations from the national organization to not do this. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, and I said, I, I actually responded, I said, what are they going to do to them? You know, throw them out of, you know, of, of ACS? You know, uh, you know, so, so that... Uh, you know, a little, I think a little backbone, you know, might be called for here. Uh, I, you know, certainly, but that's exactly what I mean. The pressure and incentives are coming from the top, and they need, and part of changing them has to be that adults, uh, you know, the, the, the leaders of various organizations, of influential people in our political discourse, in our academic discourse, need to start setting better examples and encouraging their students to communicate cross-ideologically. It, it's a change where incentives are being set from the top, and that's where change has to happen, at least in part. Okay, well, I think we haven't heard the last of this topic, but I want, I want to thank all of you for coming in. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, we'll, maybe we'll have you back on and see you get an update next year or something like that. Thank you very much. <laughs>